welcome back to Deep Focus. My name's Quaid, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick. How you doing today, Nick? Pretty good. Uh, I'm glad we're back. <laughs> yes. It's been a little while. About uh, Probably be around what, a little over two weeks, I think, when uh, people are listening to this. Mm-hmm. I had midterms, and Nick is finishing up some artistic projects, and other things got in the way. We attempted to film an episode, and, uh, well, we're going to have to refilm that one. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah. So essentially, we don't want to leave you guys hanging too long. Where we are, there's a snowstorm right now, and we were gonna go see that. Uh, what is it called? Synchronic. Yeah. With uh, the guy from Captain America, Anthony Mackie, is that his name? I think so. Um. Yeah. So it's a, one of those. You know those films where people take a drug and something happens. You know, <laughs> it's almost like a, a new subgenre. I remember as a kid. I don't know if you saw that Disney movie. But there's that one where mm-hmm. like like the Martian or something, my Martian or something, and he's wearing that stupid silver suit. And he's sure. got those little gumballs that he takes and he turns into little alien monsters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, this is that, but for the adults that you know, the kids that are now adults. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and we also had the Jamie Foxx movie recently on Netflix. Did you see that one with the pills that give you superpowers? I did not actually. I, I've been really behind on watching films just because you know, same. Every second goes towards making something. Them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> something else. Anyways, yeah. yeah. This is a bit of a hail mary episode, guys. We're gonna, we're gonna just shoot the shit and see how it goes and see if people like it or not. Yeah, um, we should call it shit shooting if they'll yeah. let us swear on <laughs> Spotify or Apple. We're we're labeled explicit no matter what. I was just thinking about that today. I was like, I wonder. If that has a negative effect on our listing, but I don't know. Maybe it's, we have to do it anyways. There's no yeah, way. Yeah, unless you want to go through and censor um, no. every time I swear. Uh, add on like an extra. I'll have to listen to the actual episode. Um, and I don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I have something to start off with then. Sure. Uh, I was reading an article and I'll try to pull it up here, but about how. Uh, they almost sold the new James Bond because of this whole COVID thing. They oh, were really? considering selling the new James Bond um, to a streaming platform for a $600 million sale. Wow. Isn't that insane? Here, here yeah. it is. We got it at pendect.com. Um, MGM explored the possibility of selling No Time to Die, the upcoming James Bond movie, to a streaming service on a $600 million deal that's an interesting figure right because i imagine the movie's like 200 to 250 million budget i just imagine right and uh so it's like okay well they're not doing marketing right like and they don't have to split the money they would actually be making around maybe three times their money on that so it's actually not that bad you know what i mean because otherwise they're adding on marketing so let's say it'll be like 300 million total i mean they've already marketed it a bit so that's true i'm sure that that's that is true. Already an incurred cost. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we're really going to start to see a shift in how everything's going. And honestly, I don't really know how it's going to go because, you know, the world's up in the air right now. Yeah. Um, but especially the film world, uh, I don't know. People are moving in droves away from California. Sure. Um, due to COVID or, you know, new tax laws or whatever. But they're losing a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. 
I mean, I just don't, you know, who is it worth it? Is it worth spending $600 million on a movie to stream it from a streamer's point of view? I don't I mean, know. Uh, well, I mean, I guess like if it's an, because I haven't heard of that streaming platform. Um, and like if they got James Bond, that could kind of like. Uh, I assume it's either Netflix or Amazon or is it? maybe Warner okay. Brothers. Yeah. Um, well, if it's, especially if it's like a streaming service that's going to kind of use that to propel itself into the big leagues. It could very well be worth it, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's strange though, right? The incentives are so different because the movie itself. I suppose they pay attention, obviously, to analytics, but yeah, they're. Um, would, would they just own the movie? You know, would we not even be able to buy? Like, would it be impossible to have a complete collection set now of James <laughs> Bond movies, or are they just owning a stream rights to it for? It's strange. I'm sure. I'm sure it's uh, rights for a given amount of time. Um, it's probably some sort of like reoccurring deal that has to be renewed every, uh, like annually, biannually, something. You know, um, some. I expect that it's kind of similar to what um, IP laws look like, where you know there's different contracts and like uh, duties you have to fulfill or like view counts essentially that you would have to make. Yeah. Um, in order to maintain the deal, but um yeah, no, it's it's becoming weird. I, I really don't I've said this for a while, but like I don't agree with selling uh the streaming rights like outright um sure. to any film. And like I think that as a production company, you should retain the rights to stream it yourself. Um like that yeah. would probably be the best way to do all this. And like, honestly, like I think that should be um, not something that you have to write into the contract, but something that's written into film law, mm. you know, where like the company that made it originally has the right to stream it on any platform that they own. Yeah. You know? um, because I honestly see everything going a little bit, a bit back towards kind of like the cable um, sure. mentality, but instead of, uh, instead of having it be like channels, you know, we're cutting out some middlemen with technology and it's like, um, you have production companies and then you have, um, streamers. <laughs> yeah. Streaming platforms. Yeah. Netflix well, well, and like, HBO honestly, like each production company could have its own streaming platform and then you could support those companies directly. Sure. You know? There is the um, idea though, that that probably wouldn't happen. The idea that a, you know, out of the hundred plus production companies, there are, that they're all going to have enough movies to support a streaming platform. Well, that's the thing is it doesn't have to be like a full platform, you know, like it just a rental. Just be, yeah. Or, or it could be like, if there is a monthly subscription, it could be like three bucks or something. And obviously your idea is just that they should be able to, not that they shouldn't be able to sell their sell right, exactly. rights for other people. Like yeah. I think they should be able to sell the streaming rights to people, but they shouldn't like, they should never lose the right to stream their own film, you know? And I, I think that. that that would honestly create a better environment for films too. Cause it would essentially be like, Oh, these are the creators. And then um, what you'd be buying into in terms of streaming platforms, uh, quote unquote, it would be uh, essentially like collections. Right. So uh, you would do it more so based on taste than what's available. Right. Cause they're like trying to create this era of like exclusivity uh, being like, Oh, you can only find friends here. Sure. You know, um, which I think is uh, very toxic to the film community. 
Yeah, it is strange. Yeah. You know, whenever there's a disruptive technology, um, and yeah, like I know, right, because I'm 25 years old and I know everything, <laughs> and I can just say whenever there's a disruptive technology. But that said, whenever there's a disruptive technology, it seems to be that people think this is going to challenge the old power structure in a sense and bring a new era of freedom. And for a brief moment, that happens. And then it just yeah. sort of becomes the same thing, whether it's bought off by the old or it becomes the new old. Right. Um, where it's like, oh, man, we got all these new streaming platforms. People are going to be able to make weird, quirky, independent films, you know? And then it's like, no, actually, <laughs> it's going to be the same old shit, but it's now just these few companies. Right. Um, now it's just Disney, Warner Brothers, Netflix, Amazon. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> right, exactly. So. Um, but I think, like, you know, like, if a, for example, like, if A24 did a streaming platform, like, I, I would, I would buy that. You know, and like, it would be nice because you could support the type of movies that you like. Yeah. You know? and My thing is for a, for an individual production company, like if I like their movies, I'm just going to buy the physical. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's true. As long as they can still sell their physical and they get a good deal on that. And that's the thing is like, I don't believe that physical media is ever disappearing. People always want to talk about the death of physical media. Listen, they talked about that shit for like five years when it came to books and it never came to pass ever we didn't all switch over to e-readers and the same thing's not happening with dvds and blu-ray sure maybe less people are buying them but they're not disappearing and actually the inverse is happening which is they're becoming higher quality which i'm really loving people are sort of following in the footsteps of criterion they're taking the idea of like oh yeah let's do like really high quality transfers with nice you know art and nice little extras and nice little behind the scenes shit you know um yeah I really I, like. I think that. when they mean the death of it, I, I think they mean the death of it as a uh, like massive industry. You know, sure. Um, so like, you know, it fall it falls from being a multi billion dollar industry to, you know, maybe some, but um, there are those that literally mean the death of it, just like they did with like we're gonna be all reading e readers and shit like that. Yeah. So, um, which to be fair though, like it, it, if people meant the death of books as a. Uh, like as the prime reading medium, they were kind of right. Um, Not necessarily though, right? Because if I understand the statistics, more people read now worldwide novels than ever before. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but I mean, it, that that might also include uh, like Kindles and sure. stuff like that. No, it absolutely does. But I just don't see the actual physical book disappearing ever really. Yeah, well, um, I, it's the world's become so massive in terms of who has access to what, uh, yeah. that I, I think like nothing anymore. Um, like basically you can find an audience for everything. And that's kind of what's, that's honestly what I think is exciting about the future is that, um, essentially like before you could only get to, um, kind of, a create a modicum of success for yourself by, finding or like appealing to the mainstream and sure. then like branching off into your niche but like now really you can you can make things that apply specifically to niche audiences and um that can work because you can just give it directly to them and completely bypass the masses you know yeah. and you know even even though you're not getting those you know uh hundreds of millions of views you know having like ha having 10,000 uh people watching your stuff or something like that consistently 
you know, and people that are kind of like avid supporters of that can, you can create a living doing that. Yeah. You know, um, I absolutely agree. And so like, it used to be that those were kind of like pipe dreams, you know, and like if an, if an idea wasn't mainstream enough, it would never make it. But yeah. Yeah. You'd have uh, that, to that's, that's somehow yeah. spontaneously just uh, erupt the cult following, you know, <laughs> right, I mean? right. Like Cassavetes in New York or something, you know, um, it is strange, you know, uh, going, you know, tying that all back in uh, to the streaming thing, one of the, in, in the IP rights in particular, I, I know the what you're sort of saying, or at least I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I think you're saying is you're saying production company because you have a production company and you view your films as part of your production company. But really what I think is um, the IP, at least after a certain amount of time, uh, the rights to it should essentially revert to the filmmaker in charge, the director, similar mm-hmm. to how the IP is owned uh, of a book by the author and a painting the artist and so on, unless sold. Yeah, uh, I mean... Um, I, I kind of agree, kind of disagree there just because uh, like I would say film is a very collaborative um, art form, which is why I would say, you know, production company. Yeah. But why does it go to the production company thing? You know what I mean? Like it's not to say like producers, I'm not saying producers don't do anything, but you know what I mean? When you think of production company or studio, it's like it'd be one thing if those individual producers with the director and some of the heads of the department shared the IP. You know, sure, sure. But that's not what's happening is those guys come and go out of the company and that company just holds them to that IP. That's fair. For decades. Um, but I mean, like the other thing is that like film is an expensive thing to make, right? It's not like, like a book or a painting can be made. Well, that's, um, that's exactly like, what I was going to point out, which is, yeah, this is why it's not done. That's the obvious reason. There's no consistency in the actual law, because if you see the reasons that, you know, authors are given their IP, it's for artistic reasons. Well, why right. isn't that same artistic reason given over here? Well, it's not, you know, it's not uh, dished out evenly. Um, it's because of the money, you know? Right. So. Um, and like the problem is. Uh, but going back to what you're saying, if yeah. we're just doing it with our niche audiences, right? Then it's all just cut out, you know? It's just all, it's all yours. It's all on you. Yeah. It's all. Well, it's I, all. honestly, like the way that film is going, it seems like more and more and more middlemen get cut away, you know? And like with film becoming cheaper to make and with, uh, you know, profits lowering, but if we can, if we can catch up in terms of how cheap we can make a film for, Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, no, we can absolutely, um, do something where the artists can, we can have more of like an artistic, uh, approach to how we divvy out, uh, the, uh, uh, divvy out the ownership of it. But um, but I think, uh, you know, the producer does have an important role just cause like, just cause they're the ones that do kind of push everything into existence, right? Like it might be the director's vision, you know, but like without, uh, without a producer there, like literally nothing happens, right? Like it's the director's vision stays that a vision, you know? And I think that's why it it follows suit with a lot of um, actual products, you know, like ha- how that kind of works where like, yeah, you have this guy who created the idea, you know, but essentially he has to share ownership with it with whoever, um, whoever believes in his idea and, you know, gives it wings. Um, 
Yeah, I agree. I just don't uh, immediately correlate producer with production company. You know, a lot of production companies are essentially studios. Um, sure. Well, and it could be, uh, it could be the, just like the executive producer. Um, and then like, honestly, ownership, ownership of it could be something that's written to contracts too. Like the, I think the production company should always have the right just inherently to stream it on whatever platform that they want, you know, um, just because they're the ones that put the money up. Uh, yeah, I thought about this in uh, in a sense where I'm thinking about almost the reverse thing, where it's like I wouldn't even necessarily care if the production company itself maintained lifetime rights, you know, or yeah. if other people had rights to it. But what I more want than anything is I want the director to also have rights to it. <laughs> That's what it, and they don't. They just well, don't. that would be something that don't. like that would be something that maybe uh, they could write into their contracts because I know eventually, um, but it should just be sort of standard operating procedure frankly it's not like it can even be delayed you know nolan doesn't immediately have to be able to release a blu-ray of his movie right if he wants to you know he can what he can be in the contract hey you have to wait 20 minutes uh 20 minutes yeah 20 years i I think by u.s law u.s patent law right right i think you would Um, see a lot more uh uh what's called uh collector's sets director's cuts and stuff yeah you know well you just sort of see i would imagine that you would be able to have a version of that movie um, approved by the director. You know what I mean? Like we wouldn't need to um, every director upon their death could sort of just release a a director set of their movies. You know what I mean? Or something. Yeah. Um, I I guess like the, the reason that I'm coming at at it the way that I am is like Nolan's a, a uh, as far as directors go, he is, like someone who is profoundly like an owner of his films, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, but when you look at the vast majority of directors out in the world, you know, um, a lot of them, like the reason, uh, this is actually something that I point out with films a lot is that like when the movie feels like very standard, you know, like, um, like, you know, it's OTS, OTS wide, uh, you know, close up, close up. And like uh, the actors kind of all act differently and don't really seem like there's there's like communication happening in the scene, mm-hmm. you know, but between scenes, there's no kind of like there's no uh, unity. Right. Um, I, I always point at the director and say that's the director's fault. Right. Like the reason that it, everything feels so uh, bland and uh, by the book um, is because everyone's just doing their job because no one's leading them in a direction, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of directors do that, you know? And, like, I don't know, like, sometimes, like, in that case, like, sometimes it's a lot of the other people that step up and uh, bring their vision to, um, bring their vision to, uh, light like I, I won't i won't name name here name names here but like the, i had a friend in film school who was a director and it was his dp that was a shining beacon in his films <laughs> you know yeah and like he brought so much creative vision to that film but like the director essentially was taking all the credit for it you know and yeah I mean, here's the thing, though, right? Because I remember, have you seen that documentary by um, Keanu Reeves um, and a friend of his? Uh, I think it's Side by Side, and it's about 
digital cinematography versus film celluloid cinematography. No, I actually. Well, anyways, it's just great to watch, even if you don't give a shit, because it's just interviews with amazing directors talking about film. Yeah. And David Fincher's there, and he says a similar thing to what you said, but sort of the opposite conclusion, which is, I'm going to take all of the blame. <laughs> you know, I'm going to yeah, take no, all like, of the blame. <laughs> so totally. I will take all of the credit. And, uh, and I know that's not true, right? And I know well, that's not exactly what But that's the thing is, that's, that's David Fincher, right? Like, that's... I feel like there are, and it's, it's, I think it's just a matter of taking responsibility. And like, as far as the tour theory goes, like, I totally believe that that exists, right? The yeah. idea of the tour, right? But like, um, it's just one of those things that, uh, it's not a constant, right? It's not, it's not a given when you go into a film, right? Like, I think, I think there is a difference between someone who wears the mantle of director and someone who steps up to the plate of a tour, you know? And like, I don't know. It's interesting to me that you say that because it's similar to me that when people try to make the division of between, uh, or at least it sounds similar to me when people try to say there's cinema and then there's movies. Um, well, it's sort of like just because people fail doesn't mean they're not the authors. And and it's also just because they're auth- authors, you know, I don't like the idea that pointing to this is somehow diminishing others. Um, I don't think so. Well, uh, you, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves. I mean, there, there's no clear line, right? I'm not saying that like, oh, if they do this, this and this and they're in the tour. But like there's a clear difference between people that apply their vision to a film and people that just run their set and make sure there's no hiccups but then like you know peace out and post and you know don't really have any say on the majority of their film and they just kind of let their department heads do their thing you know like you can be a very passive director if you wanted to and like i i think that's i think that's why it's so kind of like vague as to um uh and why a lot of people get into arguments about all this stuff is because, you know, it is one of those jobs that it only is what you put it into it. Um, and if you don't, you know, if you're not active about it, if you're not putting 100% of yourself and your vision into it, there are people around you that'll like step up to the plate and apply their vision to it, you know, but whether that vision's wrong you know, we don't know, but it is a collaborative medium and like the, you know, actually the way that I see it is, is like, if you're, if you're the general of an army, right. And you have kind of like this war strategy, right. And like, let's say your war strategy is either terrible or you just like operate by the book and you just say, do whatever, go, right like other people are going to step up to the plate and do it right and like succeed in places that essentially you would have failed if they just you know marched forward but i don't know like some like it's cases like that where i'm like you know just because this one platoon did really well because of their captain you know uh does the general deserve all the praise for that platoon and as far as i understand what you're saying i do think those examples are rare there are those examples of a producer or an editor sort of saving 
a horrific movie or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, but I, I mean, it's, it's weird to, uh, to me, it's still just not congruent. You know, it's like the exception always proves the rule though is like, I'm not saying that there's not bad filmmakers or something or people that abdicate the responsibility. Um, so yeah. this is how I think about it. Yeah, no, I think, well, I mean, like, obviously if any, it's, it's the attempt that matters, right? So if any director comes in and they do give it their all and, you know, they yeah. still fuck up, like that's, that's their movie and that's their fuck up, you know, and mm-hmm. that's their responsibility. But like, I guess you could say like, even if they don't step up to the plate, you can still blame them. But I guess, I guess like I've seen movies here and there where the parts of it that are great did not come from the director. And you can tell because there's no unity in the film at all, you know? Sure. Um, It's like, you know, whenever you can, whenever you watch a movie and you have, you like kind of see this consistency where like, you know, you keep being like, wow, that shot's amazing. And like, this person's really good at showing this kind of emotion with the camera. And like, that's all you're, that's all you're seeing, you know? And the emotion that this guy's trying to put forth with the camera isn't matched by the music. You know, the idea is not there in the writing. But, you know, there's there's a million different reasons why things don't fit together. Which yeah. is why it's hard to be a director. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I get what you're saying. I mean, this initially spiraled off the them having some claim to IP, or at least first among equals a claim to the IP. Yeah. And, um... I still, I still hold by that because, you know, I don't think we should, um, have, uh, you know, creative authorship laws or practices by guilds based around, uh, people fucking up or not doing their job. No, um, for sure. Well, that's what, yeah. that's why I think like the, the only inherent ownership should go to the producer, whoever, you know, put the money down or maybe, uh, any sort of like, a copyright should go to the creator you know, the original creator of the story, not just any writer. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I ever got it out, but essentially what I was saying was, um, sorry, I just got a text message and I totally was unprofessional on the podcast. (laughs) Um, but essentially what I was saying was, um, they would, the production company would essentially just have the rights to the movie for some time. You know, there's some sort of copyright or, uh, um, patent law where rights expire after a certain amount of time you know that's what's supposed to happen with like walt disney's creations or what what happens with like classic books yeah and at that point that should be a shorter amount of time in my opinion and you shouldn't be able to keep extending it at that point um something should pass uh like that to the the filmmaker probably while they're still alive unless they're old yeah um so at least first of my equals it could be more than just the director um so yeah, I, I can't wait for Stan Lee's stuff to go. I mean, like, we won't be alive, but um, that'll be a cool no, day. It won't <laughs> happen. You think it's going to happen? I mean, Probably they are not, able to but... do this shit, you know, this patent law, man. Yeah. It's well, it might be, honestly, that might be something that people should just take them to court on. You know, like, that's how it changes, right? People are like, well, this seems wrong. And they take them to court and make an appeal. Obviously, they have a shit ton of money and a team of lawyers, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you never know until you try, right? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there's some there's some people who I do think take a good job of the intellectual property. I think of the Tolkien family, the Tolkien Trust, and uh, I'm yeah. sort of a little on edge right now because I'm hearing things about Amazon's Lord of the Rings show, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, don't know. Touch it. it looks like it's gonna <laughs> piss me off. Um, uh, and it's you know the one of the reasons that that property was handled so well is because it was handed down to people that actually cared about it and had a stake in it ancestrally. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it was Christopher Tolkien. That was the guy that was in charge of the, uh, the, you know, the heritage trust or whatever. Right. Um, you know, and he made sure if it was going to be done, it was going to be done a certain way. And you got Peter Jackson who was, you know, you could be described as being divinely touched when he made those. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, sometimes it can work out. Yeah. But it's interesting because there's, I mean, I do think that um, to kind of like loop it back, um, if directors were able to kind of um, to levy that kind of thing in their contracts where they would get uh, a piece of it. Or, send, yeah. or like ownership of it. I think honestly, any creator should, but that could be something that is common to write into contracts, and honestly, could be something that starts uh, um, the lowering of the ridiculous costs that we pay people in the film industry right now. You know? Yeah. I um, mean, yeah. Imagine the entire film set to some degree has a stake in the success of the film. You know financially mm -hmm. yeah that'd be great but um yeah like i mean if 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 they were given streaming rights and like they were like all right well you're taking this pay cut for you know getting those streaming rights sure um or or just ownership rights you know that that would be a um i honestly think that would be really good for the film industry because well, you know, screenwriters do get royalties, right? They get yeah, royalties yeah, no, on but... uh, on rentals, right? So, like, uh, I remember hearing when I first got into filmmaking, I was listening to that really popular screenwriting podcast with uh, Craig Mazin on it. Yeah. And there's another guy. But anyways, uh, the um, the writer of The Hangover, right? Uh, yeah. The three Hangover movies. So, he makes shit tons of royalties, as right. you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and I, I always thought that was really cool, but I'm also like, why is it just writers? And I'm like, okay, well, I get it because it comes from, you know, the author's guilds um, right? for novels. And it's like, well, why doesn't, you know, why doesn't the DP get that? And why doesn't the director get that? Why don't the producers get it? And they get it sometimes. And sometimes the actors get it, you know, that's more right. common on the bigger movies. But um, it would be interesting, you know, if you could sort of switch it all around and where more was on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. I think so yeah. too. Um, that was more standard rather than uh, an exception. Yeah, like we we people take reasonable wages up front, you know, <laughs> and, uh, get some money on the back end, and honestly, that money on the back end would be what um, covers it for being contract work. I mean, have we you know? covered this topic? I feel like me and you are sort of stepping around it because we've already discussed it so much together over the years. But yeah, have we got into depth of our our idea of our prediction or a possibility that we're seeing open up of blue collar filmmaking, essentially. I don't think we have honestly, but do you, yeah, do you no, want to take a run at it? Uh, sure. Yeah. No, basically what we think is that, um, 
essentially, you know, film will go from this, you know, ludicrous venture where uh, it's exclusive and, you know, people make tons of money doing it. It's going to become more of a uh, blue collar thing where, you know, you go in, you take your modest paycheck, you make something with a smaller crew of people, you know, because films are becoming uh, you're, you're kind of able to do that kind of thing. And then you just uh, your crew will be like multi-talented as well. You know, right, I mean? right. Be um, very, much less specialized. Right. Um, but. Yeah, no. And honestly, like the need for specialization is being uh, diminished by technology. So, yeah, you know, it's it's getting a lot easier to do stuff like that. And the quality that you're able to produce um, on low amounts of money as, you know, like we've sort of proven with our stuff in Colorado, but um, it's possible. It's, it's something where like, you know, the problem is that all these people are holding on to old Hollywood and they're, sitting in LA they're thinking you know oh, I'm gonna make the same amount of money this has been my livelihood for X amount of years I can't just uproot and yeah. um, totally change the structure of how I do business but honestly it's one of those things where I think our hands being forced at this point you yeah know, between it's the uh, it's the institutions that are the issue right now they're the things that it that are keeping it going and it's it's like it, a, for- it's like it's like big oil with uh, alternative energy, right? Where like they're actively doing things to try to halt that um, because they don't want to let go of what they have. Sure. Right? Um, and like, you know, with when you have this massive like entity based out of LA and, you know, it's it's been making so much money for so many years doing the same thing. And like, it, it's, like I, I kind of look at the film industry and I, I think, you know, I'm not saying that like it's been without innovation, but it's been without massive innovation for like go, we're going on like 60, 70 years now. You know, like everything's been run the, like pretty much the same way. Um, it's and, seductive. That's the big issue. You know, like yeah. you might start off take even like a, what were they called? The Mumblecore people. I've only seen a, a few of their films and not really their initial ones, but the people yeah. that essentially made it big mostly off of the was it southwest by southeast or is it the other way around festival mm-hmm. and they did a bunch of those like super micro budget indie films but right. now you know they have all of the all of the deals they've had tv shows they've had yeah. several streaming movies finance you know what i mean and so it's sort of like and i don't blame them you know if i got a uh, an offer i i would make my fucking movie because that's what i want to do <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah I mean? of course but nonetheless this is why i'm saying that institutions are the problem and yeah they're holding it back but that's the idea is like either something needs to happen to them unforeseen or there needs to be a transition. For example, a big transition to sort of streaming monopolies, I think would yeah. blast open the door to this idea of blue collar f- filmmaking. Right. Um, it would. Well, and that's the thing is like the way that I see uh streaming company, like I, I don't really think the, um, like I, I'm not sure if the way that the stream co- streaming companies are operating right now that it's a uh, like the way that they're approaching streaming is viable for a long term thing. But the but the way that they're doing it is you know a um, is an, a, a fucking bomb you know underneath old yeah. Hollywood. You know it's like they're 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 beating them you know and they're yeah. beating them because they're being ruthless with their 
um, practices. And like, I, I don't think it's sustainable forever, you know, but essentially, uh, yeah, and I don't think they're gonna like welcome us either. But it, like the thing is, if they, right, right, <laughs> if they knock um, out the other side, then it's like, who do they have who, left? You know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Well, and and honestly, what like the whole I- us, you know, the idea of the whole blue collar filmmaker is like we're like that fits so much better into a streaming service, you know, and it's essentially. Um, it's, it would essentially be YouTube with a little bit more on the line, you know? Yeah, and no, I completely agree. Yeah. More, more, uh, expectation of quality. Right. I could um, see a future where a theater chain, maybe Alamo draft house or something like it, maybe even regal. Um, it'll, it'll, they'll know, do play. the same things that DVDs have done, right. Where like they've moved more into kind of like the, the idea of quality and creating an exclusive service. Yeah. Right. Well, it like, also it's just, even in, you see this in Hollywood a lot, there's a cycle where things start falling apart and that's when they actually try things. And that's when new people are given a shot. Right? right. So if theaters are getting the shit kicked out of them and a lot of the old institutions are falling to the new ones, then at that point, if you just made your, some, you know, YouTube podcaster, a wink, 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 uh, <laughs> uh, that has, you know, 20,000, you know, 50,000, hundred thousand listeners and you've made a movie, you know, mm. why not throw it on a few screens, at least just a few screens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of hope, uh, I kind of hope theaters will transition into like, um, kind of like exclusive venues. You know, kind of like, this is where we completely disagree. Yeah. I love the theater. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think it can still be big, but like, you know, um, more, more like people get to choose what's showing, you know, and you can kind of like reserve a showing of something and other people could buy tickets to that or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, so the, the rich get to decide what you watch <laughs> I'm just joking. or it's just like a queue or whatever. Right. But, um, no, I get what you mean. You know, it, just, it would be interesting to play around with that. I do really like that this COVID era is making theaters do a lot of these sort of retrospectives. I guess, suppose you would call it, where they're showing the older movies again. You know, what right, I mean? right. They're actually, the, the classic hits. Um, speaking of what I was just saying, the theater by my house is actually doing requests right now. <laughs> um, I heard that you could rent. Um, rent. I don't space. know if it was Regal or maybe it was Harkins. Uh, yeah, a theater for a hundred dollars. Really? Fuck. Yeah, just get 10, 10 friends together and go watch yeah. whatever you want. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's kind of what I meant um when I said kind of creating private venues. You yeah. know. Um, well, they're doing this though cuz they're suffocating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and but I think if they started doing that, they might see that there's a little bit more of a um market for that. You know. Sure. Um Yeah, I don't know. Less and less people are going to the theaters. Um We'll see. I want to see what happens. Uh, we'll have a clear, a better idea of the trajectory. Uh, I would you know, say I will into say, April or March of next, yeah, April or May of next year. That's true. I will say though that the the kind of transition into the whole subscription service did give theaters a very healthy uh, bump right before COVID happened. Um, yeah, I think if they can reassert themselves, uh, if they don't do it by you know halfway through next year, then yeah rocky roads ahead yeah and i'll be sad but i'll also be for it because that means opportunity and the possibility for greater change yeah um, um man what what was the 
what was the company that it was movie pass that was the one that started the whole like subscription thing that was my first successful stock buy was, was the company that owned movie pass i turned like a couple hundred dollars into like i think around fifteen hundred dollars and nice. i bought like my sweet nice microsoft laptop nice yeah, yeah. I, w- I was going to buy into that and then i dealt with their customer service for the first time and i'm like whoa this this company is gonna tank <laughs> yeah i was so uh, lucky dude i had no idea what i was doing and i literally sold uh at the fucking peak maybe like nice. a penny off but nonetheless this is like a 12 14 stock so that's awesome matter yeah yeah um i did want to loop back to one thing i don't want to cut you off sure. a, no, if you have a train of thought but going back to the blue collar thing i always do find it funny because when you hear filmmakers talk about the medium and when you hear about how insanely popular the medium was and it's a very powerful medium that's something we can talk about anytime yeah um but it was popular with everyone, but especially um, the average Joe. You know, let's just take American history here, right? Mid 1900s, right. everyone's going to see it. Or in the early 1900s, everyone's going to see it, even in the Great Depression. And it's the vast majority of people are like lower middle class or working class, and this is their medium. And they they saw almost every movie. You know what I mean? And there was no way to see a movie unless you saw it in theaters as well. And so, right. um cinema got termed as this sort of working class or you know in a pejorative sense maybe low culture uh um idea and now i don't think of it pejoratively because i would so much rather have the working class than whoever considers them themselves a cultural elite but <laughs> i think it's interesting the disconnect that's happened i don't know how oh, yeah i'm sure there was some sort of disconnect back then but i feel like whatever that is has been blown the fuck up today in terms of the people that now make the films and are in the films or are in the community that make the films on Hollywood. There's no at least from the like, outside in. Yeah, there's no sense of what the working class is like. <laughs> yeah, they have no yeah. sense. They're yeah. so up their own asses. There's so few filmmakers that actually have a sense of it that it's almost revelatory when they make a film. Like um, um, the movie that we each said was like third or fourth best. What was it? Uh, you know, with Chris Pine and his brother mm-hmm. and the robbing banks in Texas. What is it called? Uh, Hell or High Water? Yeah, Hell or High Water. There is a movie. You know what I mean? That yeah, can yeah. appeal or at least resonate with working class. Now, not every movie's got to be that, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, so. I, I think I think also like I don't know. Have you you've seen this? I, I can't like name a specific movie, but like when there's a like you have this big Hollywood movie where you know a family falls on hard times, and you just have like the father sitting at the kitchen, you know, in the dark or something like with this. Yeah, it's like it's this like totally over dramatized and ridiculous. Uh, um mm-hmm. version of what's going on and like it, it's just lacks complete sense of you know what people go through right right they're just yeah. like oh i bet i bet they're just wallowing in the darkness like what <laughs> <laughs> like nah. they don't have one they don't have time to wall in the darkness they probably they don't, don't even like have a healthy outlet right probably yeah, i have a friend who had like, a yeah yeah like different areas of your life like no one just like <laughs> you know and, and like that's the kind of thing that like they're always doing you know like i, I also love that like, they betray the working class like they're like in a fucking miserable state you know what i mean yeah like, yeah and it's not even like they're the, work, the working class isn't going through hard times or something they almost always are but it's like they couldn't imagine being happy and having to live that way you know what right I mean? right i have a friend who and his, his neighbor is a working class family, father of a working class family that lives in the house next to them, his neighbors. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and they're struggling. And he had to make the choice between um, a hot water heater or getting new tires for his truck so he can drive to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the sort of choice. But yet the guy's jolly as fuck and the the family's happy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, well, and, and that's the thing is like they find they find other ways to be happy. And like, you know, yeah. that's the kind of thing that usually draws people together. But um, also, um, have you also noticed how like whenever they're like people live in a place that's like out in the out, like kind of like out in the country, mm-hmm. they're always chopping wood. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. think they're in flannels chopping wood all the time. Yeah. You know, and like whenever I see that in a film, I just always think of how, like, I feel like these guys don't know anything about, yeah, like, the working class. Like, and obviously we're not talking about every movie, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's, there's your few like whenever you have a big old this Hollywood may, blockbuster you know this this may describe part of the phenomena of people watching going to the cinema less and buying less dvds and blu-rays and even to some degree i imagine those same people aren't some of those same people that would be fitting into my example here aren't necessarily watching a lot of the streaming either you know what i mean that's true that's a it's a huge audience it's not necessarily served Anymore. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see if filmmakers who embrace a similar financial path or a way of living um, would be able to find a way of, of reconnecting to that audience and I, yeah, rekindling I, their. I, interest. I really think it's just a matter of like, uh, you know, just understanding their experience and you know, being able to talk to talk to people as equals rather than talking down to them, which is what Hollywood's been doing with all of their films. Like, I feel like yeah. everything is kind of. Every film has become a uh, um, a piece of propaganda, and I mean that in a negative light. You know, um, where Absolutely. where it is like it, it's no longer about trying to prove anything, but more well, one about, day like, brainwash. They have to see my you know? counter propaganda. <laughs> 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 but you know, you know, it's it's dishonest. It's it's like uh, you know, they're they're just trying to brainwash you by saying this is good and blue and, you know, has major chords and this one's red and evil and has minor chords and like, (laughs) you know, and like they, they, there's no, there's no truth. There's no proof. You know, there's no, uh, there's no, there's not even conviction behind what they're trying to say. They're just trying to um, push uh, like some sort of ideology on us. You know? Yeah. I mean, part of the reason they're doing it is so that they can, uh, you know, status signal in their own social circle. It's not so much actually for the art of the thing. You know, it's like I'm mm-hmm. the guy who made the movie that was talking about this. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, and, it, and, um, and this also, isn't like a partisan I, thing either. It happens on both sides of the oh, aisle yeah. really hard. Absolutely. You know? Like it's absolutely. We need to talk about Gone Girl. If there's a movie about making you completely depressed about so- social dynamics, it's Gone Girl. <laughs> but um, yeah, actually, I do want to say. Can I oh, say something go about Gone Girl? Uh, so that that was uh, I, I came out of a really bad re- relationship recently, and that was actually Gone Girl was actually the movie that helped me make the decision to break up with this girl because <laughs> uh, because we watched it and she was just talking about like after the movie ended, I, like you know I, I was expecting a certain type of reaction, but the reaction that I got was um, just like this awe at the heroism of. Roseman Pike's Bro. character, 
Yeah. You know, and basically this girl saying that like this, this was one of her like favorite characters of all time in a film. Not like, not like in a, you know, she understands how, you know, yeah. fucked how up fuck this was, <laughs> you know, but like uh, that this is what she wanted to yeah. be, you know? Yeah. And I was like, wow, that is the biggest red flag I've ever seen in a relationship. Yeah. This is probably where I should end it. <laughs> uh, That's crazy. But yeah. um, to loop it back for a second, though, to, you know, be, I was talking about social signaling and the reason why they have these. You were describing their shallow um, sort of moral messages and so on and their preachiness. Yeah. This is also a huge reason why I think villains are more popular now than they've ever been. Because the sure. villain has moral courage compared to the heroes, because the heroes are completely banal. Right. You know, I'm exaggerating, but I mean, not all for the films. most part, like you're right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and this is why people, you know, take. We'll take the big one, right? Let's take Avengers. This is why Thanos was so fucking popular, and people weren't that upset, and people were sort of. There's a lot of people sort of rooting for him. And this yeah. is why people sort of root for the Sith. And there's this is why a lot of people were sort of interested in that moment of the second of the new Star Wars trilogy where they almost did something different. And I'm just oh, uh, we need the, to talk about that at some point too. Maybe, yeah, maybe we should just definitely talk about it now after. <laughs> because that's actually <laughs> well, a pretty good example of what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, um, and it's it kind of sucks because before before we get into that, that's we were not like haters of the new Star Wars series and. Um, we were, we were big defenders of it while it was coming out. Right. Um, yeah. and I, I stand by this, that you should not judge a work until it's finished. If it's a multi-part thing, you got to watch it till the end. Right. Because honestly, you can't tell whether, um, the intention behind something, um, was good or, or sorry, I should say, uh, you can't tell whether something was good or bad, um, based on the intention of the filmmaker until you know what the intention of the filmmaker was which is at the end of the film. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, basically when we saw episode seven and eight, we were thinking that it was going to go in a very like unique direction for a star Wars series. And then it ended up, uh, you know, in the third one kind of petering out, uh, ended up being a traditional kind of, you know, there was a lot of like sure. market tactics in the film and, uh, I'm sure that was you all of J.J. Abrams' fault, but um, essentially it turned into Dragon Ball Z at the end, where they were just shooting bigger lights at each other. Uh, um, little little uh, soliloquy here. Yeah, I want to do a live action adaptation of Dragon Ball Z. Oh, that would be cool. I, I, I think that'd be a lot of fun. I I would. Do you, would you want to make it like a movie or a TV show? No, a movie. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to cover the entire series of events in Dragon Ball Z, but just the big ones. Just the big ones. And I really want to shoot the scene of Super Saiyan 3, the scream scene. Okay. It's very powerful. Yeah, I love okay. that's I one. Really know. I know that we're getting a, a, <laughs> away from it, from what you're saying here, and we yeah. will get back. But I love the connection in a lot of animes, not all of them, but the direct yeah. connection between sort of willpower and strength. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think there's a more – there's at least for me, like, because I haven't watched a lot of anime. Sure. That's one of the purest expressions is I'm just going to scream for five minutes straight <laughs> and then I'll be able to beat you <laughs> yeah. to my pure willpower screaming. I love it. Anyways, oh, back you, to know, you know what, though, about, <laughs> about that? Like, yeah. I was I was just watching one uh, the other day and uh, 
there, there was this kind of like scream at the end of one of the episodes, right? And it's very powerful in Japanese. And I was like, you know what? I wonder what it sounds like in English. And it was just horrendous, you know, like, sure. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually went through all the languages just to check you know, which screams had the most like truth in them. <laughs> like, man, I really like this Russian guy screaming. I'm uh, write actually, this down. so the best one was actually German, very oh, closely okay. followed by the Japanese. Um, and I was like, wow, the Weird. access is on point right now. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, but then uh, the worst one was actually European Spanish um, followed up yeah, by English, romantic unfortunately. Language. Yeah. But uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, I wonder if that's uh if that has to do with how uh, they sort of the deep throated speaking of the of the Japanese and maybe a little yeah. bit of the Germans. Yeah, we're, I, I feel like there's also a lot more um, oomph put into a lot of stuff in those languages, you know, and like sure, maybe maybe they're a little a little more basic, so you have to you have to um, you have to portray a little more with how you say something. Sure. You know, where I feel like we get away with being pretty monotone all the time just because we can say things in a million different ways, you know? Yeah. And always I always mean, find a better I, way to say it. Whenever I watch anime, and once again, now I watch a lot of anime, I'm yeah. talking very generic anime. You know what I mean? Sure, Even if sure. it's good, like Dragon Ball Z. I do sort of sometimes sit there thinking, I'm like, anime is like if Nietzsche sat down and wrote <laughs> a bajillion different TV series. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> like, they're all just Ubermensch. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, all- it's so interesting because like, because yeah, they do focus on the psychology of the characters a lot more than uh, we tend to. But I would say that we actually write more unique characters in the West. Uh, they kind of have more archetypal uh, outlooks yeah. on it. But uh, what I wanted to get at was, uh, was, uh, actually just talking about anime um if you guys don't watch it out in the audience you should um essentially the way that i always tell people to approach anime and uh this is something that like um that i think kind of contradicts the way that we watch things in the west because i think one of the worst things that someone can be in the west is cringy you know, and sure. unfortunately, I think it actually that actually stems from our own insecurity in our abilities in film, you know, and because of, you know, the cultural elite we have in film where uh, a lot of them don't really know much about cinema. So they're afraid they're always afraid at any corner that like they're going to be cringy. So like if they feel that in a film, they think that that's them, not the film yeah. doing that on purpose. There's you know, some sort of reflexive embarrassment that uh, I think Western audiences get from seeing cringe. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but essentially, like what you have to uh, realize when you go when you're watching an anime is that they uh, use exaggeration as a tool of storytelling. You know, and that's the most important thing to understand when you go to watch it is that um, you know when when you see things happen, they're not always literally happening. You know, um, a lot of it is about the emotion that you feel behind what's going on. So if you see them jump 40 feet into the air to attack this person, it's not like sometimes it does literally mean that. But like most of the time, it doesn't literally mean that they're exaggerating um, as a tool in storytelling. Yeah. You know, it's more about how that moment feels to the person looking at it, which is why it's almost always in perspective when you see that kind of thing. Right. Um, But. Once you understand that like exaggeration is actually a tool that they're using, you can be a lot more in sync with what um, 
with what they're trying to say, you know, and actually enjoy a lot of this really, really good cinema that, you know, people don't know about <laughs> because yeah. they just don't watch it. And I think anime is actually becoming a lot more popular in Western audiences than it was when we were I would kids. say it's fairly mainstream at this point especially yeah. if you're like younger millennial or younger you know right right but for older audiences i feel like generally they um, oh yeah weird japanese cartoons what am i going to do with that you know, right well and they see it as a kid's thing when like it's very much not you know uh it, they have mm-hmm. ratings just like any other we need uh, uh somebody you- in the west to come along and give a rebirth to some sort of idea of western animation you know what i mean yeah that would be really awesome. I mean, we someone ha- needs to do it. Yeah, I think we have a few. Um, but there's people that are competing. But uh, but you're right that a lot of it is geared towards children and yeah, um, or comedy. and also it's all like outsourced yeah. as well. You know what I mean? Like there's not people that are actually doing it. Right, right. You know, um, you know, like look at our comedy shit. Like it's funny, but it's like it's all drawn by like way overworked people in Korea, and it's all <laughs> like the same style. You know, what right, I mean? right. So. Um. But yeah, anyways, uh, back to Star Wars. Uh, we, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, Quaid and I were uh, very big fans of The Last Jedi. And I think that's yeah, the like, second one. Yeah, I think that's the, um, I think that's the least. Liked People one. hated that one. Yeah. Um, which, you know, which one I didn't like the most out of the three, even though I didn't hate it or anything mm. like that. Guess. Uh, I'm going to guess the first one. Yeah, you'd be correct. Um, I also think the first one is the best made one, <laughs> which is funny. Um, but also, no, the third one's my least favorite. The the first one, <coughs> the second one's my favorite one. The first one, sorry, we should say the actual episodes. Seven is, sorry, eight is my favorite one. Seven is my second favorite one. Uh, I really just was upset by eight. Um, hmm. Just because like it kind of spat in the face of everything. You mean nine? Yes. Uh, yeah, nine. Sorry, um, it just kind of spat in the face of what they tried to do themselves, um, and sure. I felt like everything they got in there scared. was they couldn't commit. Exactly, there was a complete lack of commitment in that film. Like any time any sort of decision was made, it was reversed instantly. You know, within the next mm-hmm. five scenes, and like it, everything felt of no consequence to the point where, like, when Finn was in danger at the end, I was just so fucking bored. He was falling sure. off of a fucking starship that was like turning and I was bored, <laughs> right? Like, because there was no, there was no weight in that scene. There was no gravity for that moment. You weren't scared from his life because you knew that the writer's hand was there ready to save his life, you know? And sure. I would say that that film is a, is a prime example of how to use deus ex uh, machina horribly, right? Okay. Um, like you're just like I think it made the hand of the author way too apparent. Um, also, there were a bunch of unnecessary storylines that were clearly there just to sell products. You know. Yeah. Um, and that would. Like, I will say the reason why I didn't hate the third one. Sure. Um, or I didn't really hate any of them. Um, I didn't necessarily really even love any of them. I did really like the second one, especially key parts of the second one. Yeah. But the reason why I don't have the same reaction as you do with the second one is I really enjoyed all the Sith shit. I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So yeah. that's my uh, well, high flute opinion right there. Well, that's the thing is like, I think Quaid, that, that I enjoyed been, the Sith shit. <laughs> well, I think that should have been the highlight of the entire story. Sure. Right? And I think that's what we should have 
like die like t- taken a dive into is the Sith stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's what the whole movie should have been about. Um, but it was just it, it, like all that felt like cliff notes. Right. And cliff notes. That yeah, I were, feel like Abrams was trying to fix his perceived um, critique of Johnson as well as, you know, well, the reason I didn't really like the first one and I see a little bit of again in the third one, I guess mm-hmm. that means seven and nine. Yeah is they feel very rushed formulaic to me where it's like I'm watching like especially in the first one I was like I'm watching a Star Wars movie being speed run that's how I felt I kind of feel and there's like a that's, little bit of that J- that's how JJ Abrams works too I, I wouldn't say that that's sure. something that's exclusive to those Star Wars films like sure and like I don't even think they're bad like I'm just saying like right, relative right. relative to why I like the second one the most and I'm you know I'm not I'm not tied up with these films that much uh I enjoy them. I don't get the people that hate them. You know, it seems odd to me. They have some think, sort of emotional attachment to some idea. Right. That, well, I think what happens is that uh, they they think that they own Star Wars because they like it. it it's it's that kind of like yeah. It, it's, it's no the whole yeah, dude. I know someone that, that said of, that. Right. It, it's the whole criticism that I have of fandom in general is that like people people take IPs and they attach them to themselves like grotesquely, right? Where they just they just um, a mutual they, uh, filmmaking friend of ours lived with a guy who said, I have more ownership over Star Wars than Lucas. Yeah, that's fucked. Right. That's like that's so delusional. <laughs> yeah. And like that's the kind of that's that is the kind of uh, thinking that fandom kind of induces in you. Right. Where yeah. where uh, you kind of I, I think the whole um, idea of it is. uh that you essentially just attach these things to yourself and you make that part of your identity because you don't know what your identity is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of like artificially sew these things that aren't from you onto yourself, you know, and say yeah. like, look, it's mine and it's grotesque and disgusting, you know? <laughs> it's, um, no, absolutely. I mean, I've talked to you a lot about how a lot of people, um, uh, they identify themselves. They state that the aspects of their identity that make up their identity are essentially all forms of consumption. You know, I've talked to you about right. this before. I had a friend where I even argued about this with him and for whatever reason, he really didn't like this point, you know, but it was like, you know, a lot of people, for example, will project their identity by the clothes they buy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And things like this. And I was always like, well, shouldn't identity be like about deeper things? Like yeah. either like immutable characteristics or like, like very sacred chosen beliefs, you know what I mean? Right, right. Like um, it shouldn't be something you can buy at Walmart. Yeah, like, well, that's actually something... my my next film actually has that idea in it, where uh, yeah. uh, kind of this uh, drug in it is is um, essentially oh, so you're doing the drug, drug. Film. So uh, no, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, <laughs> I've actually already told you about this one, but I don't want to like yeah, say it yeah, on I air. Remember, um, yeah. But um. No, there's just that uh, whole idea where uh, essentially consumption is like this euphoric um, drug that turns you into this like empty thing, empty shell of what you were. Sure. You know, Um, but uh, yeah, no, anyways, uh, back to wait. Well, can I say one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. Yeah. Um, I also think it's part of maybe I'm on my soapbox here, but. 
I also think it's part of the consequence of not having a, a truly authentic culture anymore, of being in a culture that's in a serious state of decline, is all of a sudden you don't have a culture that actually uh, imparts to you some rich sense that of historically root, rooted identity. Um, and so now you have to find it uh, through marketing departments at, you know, the companies that sell products or films or so on. You know I, what I mean? I also wonder if that's more of a... Uh a uh, after effect of the kind of like idea or i guess the um the age of spin right where information's just been twisted to everybody yeah no one can trust anything anymore right like i wonder if it's a people are factionalized because the internet just uh gave everyone a sub community right yeah it's there's a lot of things but i definitely think what i said is part of it sure sure um but yeah anyway star wars uh (laughs) Yeah, what, what we, we got a few minutes here, and I got to go in a few minutes, so let's finish it up here. Cool. Star Wars. We were talking about. Oh yeah. Why you didn't like the ninth one? Uh yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I didn't dislike it either. Like, I I liked it fine. It just was very. It didn't affect me at all. You know, like nothing in it. Um, tugged. Yeah, at you me. lost interest. Nothing. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a very boring film with a lot of flashing lights and big set pieces. No, I feel you. I remember Um, going, I went and uh, the audience was not nearly as excited as a lot of Star Wars showings I've been to. And it did sort of just feel like I was just watching a standard movie. You know what I mean? Like even me being someone who sort of didn't get into this new craze of the Star Wars movies. You know what I mean? Like I was Star Wars crazed as a kid. But when they, I never like, you know, the, the whole nerd thing happened where it was like cool to be a nerd and everyone can be really nerdy about We're just talking about fan communities you know what I right mean? right and but i never was like uh kept that shit with me from my childhood in a sense where i'm like oh okay i can continue to like pokemon cards in star wars uh which is fine i'm not saying you shouldn't be able to i'm just saying i didn't get into the secondary craze right which yeah. is why i don't have well i think, strong there, opinions I think there's a difference way. between loving something and being part of its fandom yeah you know but that's what I, yeah no i totally get what you're saying and so it was interesting to me, though, because even with that aspect of myself not having gotten into it, every single time I went to see Star's movie, there was a little bit of myself that was waiting, the little boy inside. You know what I mean? That was like, is it going to be a little awesome? Right. Could it be right. a little awesome? <laughs> yeah. And, well, the first one was okay. And what didn't really hurt me either way. And I really did like the second one. That was fun. Me and you saw that yeah. together. Um, the third one. Uh, I got to say, I liked it as a movie. I liked certain scenes of it, but mm-hmm. it did it did not have the magic of going to see a Star Wars movie. It was very much like, I'm here to watch a, a just a movie, another movie at the theater. I honestly think it was the just the sheer amount of storylines put in and storylines and characters put in exclusively for marketing purposes. You know? Do you have an example? Because I don't remember, but I believe yeah, you. Well, yeah, like there was the whole like uh, thing about the dagger right which was like a navigation tool um okay uh they had they had the whole scene with the uh uh, you think they're selling that later on yeah yeah exactly and they they had the whole scene with the uh stormtroopers that were being like launched off of their um speeders which came out in battlefront like the next day you know Uh um there was the whole like smuggler storyline which had like um a new droid and uh like a new like small little alien and like like they didn't honestly like if they had spent a lot of time with one 
you know people would have spent like gotten an emotional attachment to it but it was just like they were it was just clearly just trying to create the next baby yoda right sure um <laughs> like they were just trying to make everything as weird small and cute as possible and give it its own section in the storyline you know mm. and i was just it was by like the third or fourth time it happened and like i was like well okay so this film is a uh mostly an advertisement and and sort of failed on the story part for you right and that's it's you rough. know it's like I thought uh, Ben Solo, Kylo Ren's storyline was really good. Yeah, that's what um, I liked. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the best part of the entire three part trilogy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason that we like the second one so much is be- honestly because of like not even what the movie was, but what it could have been. Yeah. Right. The possibility of it. Right. You know, that um, is a thing about movies. That's a concept that I like to chew on occasionally that sometimes I like a movie because of the, the sheer possibility of it that I put in my mind. Yeah. It's similar to like Ad Astra or something. Right, right. Where I like, I can recognize all the faults, but it doesn't matter because just for a second, it gave me a glimpse of something even greater, even though it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and, and what what we kind of wanted to happen was um, essentially we what how we wanted the second one to end was uh, for Ray to take Kylo's hand for her to fall to the Sith because it makes complete sense, right? She's this like innocent girl that's tried to maintain her goodness her whole life and was abandoned as a child and was, you know, is finding out now that she wasn't abandoned for a reason. And, you know, she was completely worthless and that she was like, her parents were nobodies, you know? Mm -hmm. And like this person is offering her a place in the world, right? Like a meaning. And he extends his hand, like gives it to her and, uh, is offering it to her and she's just like no i'm gonna be the blue team still sorry you know sure, yeah. um but the possibility man of her taking his hand right there you know? yeah um, and also him he was also willing to forsake the sith right right mean? um and essentially what what they could have done was create a whole new bad guy right of of the former bad guy and the former main character and then they could have given luke his last hurrah in the end and made him the the hero who has to, you know, maybe like yeah. sacrifice himself in order to bring truly restore order. <laughs> uh, well, and I, I think what would have been cool was to truly bring, um, like the, he- no, I the said hero order. back. I didn't say balance. Right, right. Well, the- I guess I'm too much of a Sith. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like it would have been cool if the last storyline was about how he had, like, his role as the hero was to essentially like sacrifice himself to bring, um, his pupil back to the light. And it would be cool if it actually wasn't, it didn't end up being Ray and it was actually mm. Kylo Ren in the end. That would have been really cool. It, that would have been very Star Wars y. Right? That takes balls, though. Yeah, and, it does. <laughs> the marketing department is, is running the show. That's crazy. And you have to think about it. I want to go because what you were saying about that, I have something. And it's like, they haven't made their money on Star Wars. You realize that? What? The money that Disney spent on Star Wars from. What I understand, they haven't actually made their money back Oof. from the initial purchase of Star Wars. That sucks. Um, and that's one of the big reasons why they got so in- entirely skittish towards the end there with that Han Solo movie and the third one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now they're why they're taking a break and why now the producer, what's her, Kennedy, I think, Kathleen Kennedy. Right. She's going like, oh, yeah, maybe we did mess up and maybe we should have just adapted what like the canon was before we said it didn't matter. Right. Um, so that's all interesting, you know. Yeah, um, it's it was a weird thing though because it was a co- I think it was a combination of because I think they were right that like the fans are toxic, you know. Um, 
And what what I mean by that is it's not that like I'm not talking about the way they act or their political positions, but honestly, just like how they perceive Star Wars, right? It's a very yeah, it's theirs. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very toxic thing, and like it's theirs and it's their idea of it and it's their headcanon, right? And like, um, it's uh, like no matter you what you win. do, yeah, you won't win, yeah. right? But like, and yeah. like making a Star Wars film, I feel like like that's actually a conversation that I had. Um, actually, was it with you? I think it might have been with you. Oh, wait, no, it was with yeah. us. It was with uh, uh, Stephen Jake. Jake, I think. Uh, but when when we started talking about making a Star Wars short, we had this conversation where we were um, uh, we were talking about how like we don't really like the fans <laughs> too much. Like we're we're making this Star Wars film for um, you know, to to appease that kid in us, right? That always wanted to make a Star Wars film. Yeah, you know, and but instead of making whatever external like canon decision that um is going to make the film good we just wanted to to um stay true to what we remember about star wars right and um what they were trying to say and like honestly the overall messages and i think the reason why um that version of the eighth film sounds so appealing to us is because that truly fits into what star wars was back in the day right with um darth vader and luke and the emperor and how like you know there's the whole like family dynamic between luke and yeah darth vader luke, and, join me yeah you sort of want him to like luke, <laughs> the hero that we expect you know ends up losing and then uh darth vader yeah. ends up being the, the savior of the galaxy at the end you know yeah. and like that's that's such a uh that's just so totally not what happened <laughs> in the new star yeah. wars and it was just not at all it was banal just like we were talking about right um and like it was so weird because uh the reason that i w- i loved uh ray's character in the seventh and eighth episodes was because i kind of uh read into it a little too much and i was um it, i didn't write in your own film well sort of i i think i th- i kind of read it as they were hiding her right for the big reveal Right. Sure. Not that there was nothing there. Um, and there's like <laughs> brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Right. Like, I know like the the only they, they technically were hiding it, hiding something, but it was literally just her pedigree. Right. Mm-hmm. Like um, nothing about her, her as a person, you know, nothing about her soul. Well, right. Um, yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Um, we should. uh I, like I said, I, this is about the time I was saying I needed to get going. Sure, so sure. I have one quick thing and you might, you can finish it off, but I did want to say about Star Wars since we're ending here for whatever yeah. reason, because we're shooting the shit and this is where we ended up, baby, <laughs> um, is I'd have heard whispers of the master coming back to us, of Lucas possibly taking oh. up the mantle again. I I would love it. Fuck it. Let's do it. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, you know, um, as long as I he... like the prequels, prequels are good. Prequel fan club here. Yeah. Um, I, I so. that something about the prequels prequels. I think they're very poorly made movies that are fucking awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there's so much heart in them. And like, honestly, like when it comes down to it, that's what I'd rather have is yeah, they like, just go for it. Yeah. Just honest, uh, honest, like, uh, like, uh, 100% attempt at bringing your vision to life. And you know what? Yeah. If you fuck up, it's still going to be amazing. You know, like, yeah. 
there's there's so many saw, parts of the prequels that suck, but there's so many parts that are amazing. And I'd rather have half amazing scenes and a half shitty scenes than all kind of bland scenes. Yeah. You know? I mean, I just saw the South Korean film called Peninsula. Apparently, it was like the follow up to Last Train to Busan. Wutan. Yeah, yeah, Busan. There we go. Um, I thought it was that movie, but no, it's like the follow up. Oh, and weird. the entire okay. time I was watching it, I was like. Oh wow! Like this is a really fun. Movie. I had no idea I was going to watch a South Korean zombie movie. Okay, but I was like, wow, this is really good. But the one thing is like, it was a little corny. It was a little offbeat. You know these yeah. little things. But he went for every fucking moment. The director and I was like, the balls. I just have to respect it. Like, yeah, he went for the full on romanticized cinematic ending. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, man, the balls on this guy. I fucking love him. So yeah. it, it definitely works. Um, so you, do you have something you want to, yeah, I guess I'll round it up by just saying that like, um, you know, since, since we're ending on star Wars, I guess, uh, I, it's such a weird thing because like they didn't do nearly as bad a job as everyone says. And I like spend all my time, like I spent all my time having arguments with people about how like the movies were way better than they were saying they were right. Sure. Because they're saying that they're piles of dog shit. You know, and then at the same time, like now they think that I love them and I'm like, well, no, they're they're, they're like seriously flawed and they have a lot of problems. And, you know, yeah, um, there was definitely there was definitely a, um, a better take on it. And the reason what I wanted to end here is because I think that's what it was. They just didn't go for anything. Right. Yeah. They, they just played it as safe as possible. And, you know. Um, obviously played into the hands of their marketing department. Um, like the entire thing seemed focus grouped and it's, uh, it's, it's, I thought, I thought it was like a very, um, it's a very good example of making films out of fear, you know? Yeah. And essentially all it boils down to at the end is, uh, you, you just make something that's, uh, that's not impactful, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, it's that better to have some people love it than to have some people hate it and everyone else be a little indifferent, you know? Right, exactly. But there's so much more we could say. I already have many, <laughs> but the thing is, like, we should just save it for the episode about Star Wars, which we'll do at some point. Yeah. Right? Um, maybe, maybe we can actually, no, we're not going to talk about my episode. My, my <laughs> short, actually, our short film, Quaid, Quaid actually was a producer. Yeah on it um, i was production manager turned into producer through necessity yeah um a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of crazy shit yeah. went on with that film <laughs> we can we can uh tell some stories by omitting some names but that was some uh, yeah. fun pre-production there um oh yeah anyways yeah. i do gotta go um so everyone we don't know what our next episode's gonna be we wanted to just get this out because we were sorry for not being around for two weeks and uh you know, hit us up below. We got social media you can follow. You can subscribe to us wherever you want to. And uh, we'll see you next time. And with whatever episode, we don't have anything planned, but we'll have something in around a week, maybe sooner. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys have a happy Halloween. Yeah. Happy Halloween. Bye.